Uh, novels, 1,200. I am very pleased that we have won the double this year. Let's play Double Dare! Double Dare. Hi everyone, you're listening to the Third Coast Podcast. I'm Dennis Funk. June is nearly over, and that means time is running out for you to double the impact of your donation to the Third Coast Festival. For every donation we receive by midnight on June the 30th, our generous funders, the Menaki Foundation, will match each gift up to $20,000. We're so, so close to reaching our goal, which means we're so, so close to being able to update our creaky old website and make it sleek, modern, sophisticated, and Maybe I shouldn't go that far, but it will work nicely on your mobile phone or your tablet. Uh, Making our audio library the best thing on your mobile since Candy Crush is something we really want to do. But we need one big final push from our listeners before time runs out. To donate, visit our website at thirdcoastfestival.org and an absolutely massive thank you to everyone who's already donated over the last few weeks. We have a special feature on the podcast for you this week. It's called Without Name, a story about the presence of a ghostly roommate in a Brooklyn flat. It's by producer Lena Misitsis, who you'll hear from throughout. you also hear from a guy called Jeff Emptman, and he's there because this story originally appeared on his podcast, Here Be Monsters. Uh, if this story tickles you in any way, you should have a listen to other pieces from Jeff's programme as well. Uh, well, that's an awful lot of talking from me. Let's get to it. Here's this week's podcast. The exact address is. What is the what was the exact address? Two sixty, three gates, right? Two sixty gates apartment seventeen is what we're talking about. The basement, and that's where we stayed, and you stayed upstairs. Somewhere in the world, there exists an archive of every real estate transaction ever made in the city of Brooklyn. Um, But what they have at the Brooklyn Historical Society is what are called land conveyance records, which are like index cards where some person just looked at every document ever made, wrote down like the seller and the purchaser of the land, and there are also like Dutch names, and when the property was sold. They have maps of um, the lots as the lots changed and became smaller and became well-defined. But it goes back to 1699. Is that what you meant when you said the beginning of time? Yes. Uh, The beginning of Brooklyn, or as the Dutch called it, Brookeline. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but I choose to believe that's how it was pronounced. So what I have specifically, since you wanted everything that I could find about 260 Gates Ave, is I have two land conveyance records so that the last traceable owner in the old filing system at the Brooklyn Historical Society is John Moran uh, which is a super common name and he bought the lot on June 1st 1889 and then 42 years later is when the actual building was built 
Hey Lena, could you do kind of a little introduction for this for this piece? Yeah, I can. This is a story in parts. Um, and at the very center of the story, there's a building that's in Brooklyn, New York. And the show centers around the building, and my relationship to the building centers around someone named Eugene, whom I've never met. And uh, there's other parts to the story. The building is infested with cockroaches, and the cockroaches were a big part of my time there. And there was a prostitute in the building who I never met, but I could hear her working outside. And I think the neighborhood I'm talking about helps to shape the story because it's a mostly black neighborhood, it's a poor neighborhood, and it's known in New York as being a dangerous place to be. And I lived there for most of the time I was in New York. Can you just kind of explain what the building looks like? It was the kind of building that you walk into and you can tell that you're standing in a place that used to be really nice. Um, You can see these elaborate light fixtures and the floor... Um, is tiled, but it's brown, and there's tears in the ceiling. You know, the walls are faded, and I I went back to the building to see what I could find, and I went to my old apartment and knocked on the door. Hi. Hi. Um, My name is Lena. I used to live in this apartment. David Beak let me inside. Okay. Um, Can I talk to you for just a minute? A woman opened it. She was sweaty. She was wearing workout clothes. Um, And it was weird at first, but she ended up letting me inside, and we talked for about an hour. Her name is Bethany. Just a heads up to listeners. In this episode, we're going to be talking pretty frankly about drug use, prostitution, and cruelty to animals. Walking into the building... And I feel really good walking into this building all the time. It, um, it, it's sort of shabby, but it has this, like, grand feeling. Part one, the third roommate. That is so funny. I used to live in this apartment. Uh, that was my bedroom over there. Previous to our living here, someone named Eugene had lived here. He had left all of his things behind and gone to California without cleaning out the apartment at all. So everything he owned was still in here when we moved in. And we asked for a discount as long as we were willing to take the apartment with all of the things inside of it. So when I moved into the bedroom that you live in right now, I was surrounded by books that weren't my own. The walls were painted black. Um, The closet was full of instruments. There was an accordion an electric guitar, an electric piano, two amps. There was trash, there were transit maps on the walls. I have this belief that this apartment has uh, restorative powers. So there's really no awful story about Eugene? No, the, the story with Eugene is that there is no story. It's that I moved in with a roommate and I moved in essentially with Eugene and I've never met Eugene. Um, like 99% sure that I will never meet Eugene but he felt like a third roommate in a two-bedroom apartment um, just because I, I had all of his stuff. I had all of his things, and I still have some of his things with me now, and it's been years. Um, what kind of mail did he get? He got the New Yorker, um, so we had a free subscription to that expensive weekly magazine for a while. There, there was collection agencies looking for him. We got his tax information. Um, we got bills. We got loan, like loan information, and we never opened any of it. We only opened the magazine, but there was a stack of mail that was Eugene's for a while, uh, like as though he were going to come pick it up one day, and, you know, of course he never did. 
Eugene had hung three record sleeves over the toilet, which were Michael W. Smith, The Best of Pop Country 1976, and The Zombies. We left those there. We inherited so much stuff. A camel-colored pull-out couch, a Polaroid television, Eugene's bed, a chest of tools, some VHS tapes, including Magnolia Part 1 and The Godfather, these weird papier-mâché dolls with big heads much bigger than their bodies and a mouth for a vagina, winter coats, bikes, every kind of cooking spice imaginable. And that's barely even a fraction of what we found. My bedroom had been Eugene's bedroom, and it was painted mud brown, but it was so dark that it almost looked black when you walked inside. His clothes and bed were there, his books and instruments. I didn't even find it all at first. There were parts of my closet and some drawers that were left unopened for a while. I don't know why it took me so long, but nothing really looked messy, so I I didn't feel the need to clean anything out. Everything was just tucked away. I eventually found an accordion and an electric guitar, two amps, a piano, a triangle, long underwear, a flannel shirt, socks, a book of blank checks in Eugene's name. I gave the instruments to friends and the shirts and underwear didn't fit me, but I washed the socks and I still wear them today. Part two, more roommates. The building was infested. There were cockroaches in the shower, in the drain, in the dishwasher, in cabinets, uh, even in our beds. They were living in and around Eugene's spices, so the paprika and the ginger and the Italian seasoning and the truffle salt were just covered in like roach and roach shells and roach pieces. Roaches came out of the refrigerator. They were under mugs, they were in bowls, they were even in the toilet. One time I found a roach in my coffee. I remember I was lifting the mug up to my lips and I saw it just kind of swimming. I took roaches to school in my coat and in my backpack and sometimes I would find them in class when I would open up my books. We didn't spray very often because Adrian didn't really think that way. Instead, she would dab clove oil on the counters and she told me it was a natural repellent because she's from Portland, Oregon, and she thinks there's such thing as a natural repellent. But the roaches still came. But that's just how it is in Bedsty. I mean, Bedsty is a neighborhood that used to be really nice and is now squalid. Bedsty's buildings were once fancy and beautiful, but now they're mostly falling apart. The neighborhood is full of culture. It's the kind of place that people say has character, but what they mean is that a lot of famous rappers are from there, and Dave Chappelle once hosted a block party in front of the Salvation Army. Let's just go ahead and list people who are from Bed-Stuy. Um, I'll start with Mike Tyson. I believe Talib Quelly. Most Def. Jay-Z. The Notorious B.I.G. Big Daddy Kane. Memphis Bleak. Foxy Brown. Aaliyah. Lena Horn. Did we say Little Kim? Lil Kim? I think we said Lil Kim. Old Dirty Bastard? Chris Rock. Shirley Chisholm. Tracy Morgan. I think that's all of them. And we said Carl Sagan, astronomer. Picture painted. All right. Picture painted. Thank you. My closest options for groceries were these shitty bodegas on street corners, and the one closest to my house was run by a guy from the West Indies. 
he sold nondescript meat pies and generic brand coconut water. He sold Lucy's, which are individual cigarettes for a dollar each. Cats lived in the store. They slept on these dusty boxes of Inca Cola that had been sitting there for God knows how long. And every time I went there, I would try and breathe out of my mouth so that I wouldn't have to smell the stale food and burning incense behind the counter. Bodegas are cash only, and one time, when I didn't have enough change, the shop owner offered to let me pay him back later. And I didn't take him up on it. It just didn't feel right. Bedstein never felt like my neighborhood, and I didn't feel like it was the kind of relationship I was supposed to have with him. So I left without buying anything. My building's superintendent was this huge Jamaican guy with dreads named Walter. This one time I locked myself out, and he shimmied into my window from the fire escape. Walter smoked a ton of weed, and one time he brought us a huge nug disguised in a handful of chili peppers when he came over to fix the toilet. He always said, peace and love, baby, when we'd see him in the hallway. So yeah, the building was seedy and dirty, and it's now made up of the same character and culture that people attribute to Bed-Stuy. Part 3. A Dying Breed um, do you know anything about a prostitute still in this neighborhood? There's only one woman in the neighborhood who I would guess to be a prostitute. I feel as though she wears striped stockings, but that just seems so absurd. And she wears really, really, really bright red lipstick. There was this one night I was sitting by an open window that faced the building's courtyard, and I started hearing the loudest sex noises I'd ever heard. And it was like, and it was so clearly a performance. I went and I got Adrian so she could listen to it too. And we stuck our heads out the window and listened together. And as it turns out, the sounds were coming from the roof. And I heard it again the next night and the next night and the night after that. And eventually I found out that it was a prostitute. All right, so go ahead and tell me your name. My name is Jody Buckman. Neat was the building's prostitute. She would bring, she would literally bring her johns right outside my window, and it was kind of part, some nights part of the background noise, right? So, <coughs> I just wondered, like, it almost seemed like she was like the last of a dying breed of street walking prostitutes like there is no more women on the street so here is this like very flamboyant prostitute that uh, just still does it out of almost defiance can you tell me what Nita looked like let's see Nita was she was a heavier set i don't know taller than me five eight you know just kind of like you would it's an unassuming woman you know like, I think you probably passed her. She lived in the building. You probably walked past her how many times, and you didn't, you just didn't know what she did in the back alley, right? Can you explain the reason and the circumstances surrounding your encounter with her? The reason and the circumstances, um, I was looking for a piece to do. I was intrigued by the idea of the you know, the streetwalker, specifically, like, the daywalker, the girls that just f- 
are on the corner and just sell it. And she was like the last one in bed style. So I was interested. I knew that because of the apartment and its proximity, and it, it, it could be very easy. It's not like I was going to make a spectacle of myself by interviewing her, right? This other guy, which we'll, we'll just call him Sam. Now, Astor, he also lived in Billing, and he knew her number. He knew her right away, and the, literally 45 minutes later, we were in my apartment, living room, drinking beer and, you know, talking. <laughs> they got a crack rock. I partake in their, their little ceremony so to make everything comfortable. And, you know, I took a probably five or six hits of crack throughout the night, right? So it's just funny. You're drinking and smoking crack, and uh, she talked to me. Have you ever smoked crack before? Before that night? You know, once when I was real young. You know, just exper- uh, experimentally. Maybe I was 17 years old or something like that. But I didn't do it, you know, I just kind of, that was also part of the back. That was, I just wanted them to feel comfortable. So, and it worked. You know, she opened right up to me and told me all about, um, you know, she was a single mom trying to uh, deal with a deadbeat dad you know, very personable. It's um No it didn't. <laughs> you sure do have your problems. He took diligent notes in his journal. He wrote everything down and eventually he fell asleep. Sweet idea, but I But when Jody woke up the next morning and reached for his journal it looked like scribbles. It was chicken uh, scratch. He said he couldn't yeah, make out more than 10 words. I really didn't make too much sense of anything that I had written after a certain point. After, um, it's just funny, you're drinking and smoking crack, and uh, my notes were completely illegible, and I kind of just pieced it together through this, you know, this drunken recollection of it. You know, I don't. I don't want to say fictional. I I, I I tried my best, but it was a lot more in- embellished. You know, your prostitute story really resonates with me because it is this person that we all agree was there, and the only person who interacted with her was you. And your your interaction with her is like very riddled with smoke and like gray space because you like there is a lot about it that you just can't remember. Did you ever see me again after that night? Uh, I never talked to her, no. I never talked to her after that. But I kept promising the other guy, Sam, a copy of the story, which I didn't like. I didn't want anybody to read because um, just how it turned out, it was poorly edited, you know, so. Before you and I started this interview today, you smoked pot and you offered to let me smoke with you, and I chose not to. And I'm wondering if you think that it's a journalist's responsibility to kind of like go wherever their subject is going with them. Oh, no, I think that that's very much a personal choice. Like, I very much treated it as a tool. Like, smoking crack with them, I very much treated it as a tool I needed to become closer to them, you know. Something about Jody's story got me thinking about ghosts. Not the Casper kind, not Ouija board ghosts. I mean something different. People's leftovers, their marks on buildings and places and people. 
people they never even meet. To me, ghosts are unanswered questions, misused space, forgotten space, forgotten people. Part four, the ghost. They say Biggie Smalls used to perform at 260 Gates Avenue. They say he ran an illegal club down there that he used to put on shows before he got famous. I don't know if it's true, but it's one of those things that's been repeated by so many people that the truth doesn't really matter. Adrian became more diligent about the cockroaches. They really got to her. We went from clove oil to some eco-friendly spray that made the house smell weird. And towards the end, I came home to her squeezing them dead with Kleenex all over the kitchen. She even squeezed a pregnant one dead, and a sack came out of it full of roach eggs. What is your experience in this apartment with roaches? <laughs> this is Bethany again, who so lives in my apartment sometimes. now. Um, so Harold was here and Cassandra moved in, or I guess they had read this New York Times article about how geckos eat, you know, some inordinate amount of pests every single day. Like, tons and tons of things that you don't want around. Geckos love to eat it up. So, uh, they got a gecko. At first it seemed like a ghost, but I would see it, like, in the middle of the night. It would, it would only come out in the living room, like, at night, and kind of sit in the floor. And so if you flicked on the lights when you came in, you could see it run across. Gecko is like a chameleon. It can change colors, so... Sometimes it would be in the bathtub, and then it would be bathtub colored. And I think it liked to be underneath the couch a lot, and it would be black, like the underside of the couch. And then I know it hung out like around the back of the kitchen, which is probably where the roaches mostly were. And um, and then it started to get really emaciated and really, really slow. And um, we figured that it probably had to do with eating poisoned cockroaches. We, Because I know exterminators come to the building regularly and lay down poison, and um, so we figured that it was probably ingesting a lot of poison from the cockroaches. And it, it started to make its presence known more, and its presence was the saddest presence. It would... There was one day I was sitting here writing or grading papers or something, and... Um, and the gecko was over there, and Cassandra's bike wheel was was sitting next to the chair, and uh, the gecko, it never had a name, um, would was kind of propped up against the bike wheel as if, like, it couldn't even stand on its feet. It didn't make any sense. And then a fly would come through. It was the summer, and the windows were open. A fly would come through and land, just like to taunt the gecko, land, like, a few inches away, and it would just go, oh, like, like it would just make this the, the saddest half-hearted little hop and and then like flick its tongue out and you knew there was no hope of this gecko ever getting the fly. Somehow Cassandra convinced Harold that it was all of his problem. So he took it in a shoebox one day and delivered it to Park Slope. And we like to believe that this gecko is living a wonderful, healthy life now. At first it seemed like a ghost. 
I think what I found in the, my two days of working with the people at the Brooklyn Historical Society, there's a competition between like the urban renewal and the, uh, the history of the city. So what's your name? David Beek. And what property do you own? It's uh, two buildings at 256 and 260 Gates Avenue. And when did you buy them? About 14 years ago. When I first got the building in 1998, there was, it was a, a very rough building. There was always a long line of prostitutes, always out in Franklin Avenue. It was known where, I, I guess, a hooker place or whatnot. So they uh, and frequently would come into the building to do their business. And there was lots of, of course, drug dealing going on here as well. So it took me a little while to clean that up and so on. But um, the prostitutes probably also acted as a front for drug dealing as well but they would frequently go around the corner on Lexington Avenue. I had a building there too, and I kind of know this. I guess they would do their things there because the streets and sidewalks would be filled all with the old condoms and stuff like that, so. But it took me a couple years to get it cleaned up. Does this feel like home to you? I guess it does feel pretty transitory, uh, but I don't know. If Cassandra goes off to grad school or something, I would probably take over and keep it. I have this belief that this apartment has restorative powers. So there's really no awful story about Eugene. No, the story with Eugene is that there is no story. I was never able to tie up any loose ends at 260 Gates Avenue. I feel like I spent two years living in an apartment with Eugene. I lived with his stuff using it like it was mine. But this entire fleshed-out person, someone I've filled in with the books he left behind and the colors he painted his walls, that's not really Eugene. That's just a print he left on me. But invisible prints are worth getting excited about. They leave room for reinterpretation, solace, and understanding on your own terms. When the building at 260 Gates Avenue was built, it was made up of luxury apartments. Then there was the great white flight, and Bedstuy took a turn. To hear David tell it, the neighborhood is restored. We are in the beginning of the century again, but sometimes I wonder which one. Is Neat a relic of an expired era, or is she hanging on until the next shift in time? It was fitting what Bethany told me about the cockroaches, that even though their gecko fixed the problem, there were still some left over the occasional roach climbing out of the cabinets that I used, that Eugene used. I've still never met Eugene, and at this point, I don't think I want to. But while I lived in 260 Gates Avenue, he crawled out of the corners of my bedroom, crawled across the kitchen counters, kept me company at night, and, on some winter afternoons, kept my feet warm with his red knit socks. You're good? I'm good. What are you saying? You're still living in David building? I'm doing a story about the building. You're doing a story about the building? Mm hmm Walter, yeah. Walter was my neighbor. Oh, Walter was your neighbor? Mm hmm So where are you going to now? How, how, have you lived here? No. Did you ever live here? No. What about you? I'm from Queens. You're from Queens? Yeah, I'm from Queens. I just work out here. You've been working. with David about 14 years now. He's the best. I miss the building all the time. So you're just back visiting? I'm doing a story for a radio show about the building. Okay. Yeah. So the building was good to you then? The building was really good to me. I don't remember you though. You were on the third floor here? Yeah. 
So you know Walter then? I do know Walter. You know Walter? Okay. Walter is a sweetheart. You know what he always says when anybody walks by? Yeah, what do you say? Peace and love. Yeah, peace and love. <laughs> you know, the handshake. He gave you the handshake? What's the handshake? Oh, you know, so you don't know. Can, can you show it to me? You do this. Yeah, you're supposed to snap too. That's how you did it. Like that? Right. Cool. That's his handshake. What's your name? John. John, and what's your name? Leroy. And I'm Lena. Lena. John and Leroy. Mm. It's nice to meet you. Same here, Lena. Thank you so much, guys. Enjoy your time. I hope your story be good. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Okay. In New York this morning, just about half past nine. Out in New York this morning, just about half past nine. Thought of my morning album, couldn't hardly keep from crying. Big thank yous to the Brooklyn Historical Society, Marshall, Adrian, Bethany, Jody, David, Max, and Ryan. This show is for my friend and college roommate, Dean Kaufman. Put in mama's an album, me there all the time. That was Without Name by Lena Misitsis. It originally appeared on the podcast Here Be Monsters, which you can hear more from at hbmpodcast.com. Before we part ways this week, I wanted to remind all radio producers and reporters that there's still time to submit your work into this year's Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition. The final, final deadline is July 10th at noon Pacific time. So don't dally any longer. Send your best work our way. Also, remember that we have a new category this year for fun or funny stories called the Little Mermaid Award, and the winner will be hand-selected by This American Life host, Ira Glass. Uh, There are also plenty of other categories, including Best Documentary, Best New Artist, and Best News Feature. Alright, that's all for this week's podcast. We'll be back next week with more stories for your eager ears. As always, thanks for listening.